we've arrived at chapter 21. <clears throat> Took a little while, but that's because we were covering all the material that defines the church in Acts 20. Paul's address to the Ephesian elders that happened in Miletus is so significant in regard to the definition of the church, the message of the church, the qualities, uh, character qualities of church leadership, the teaching of the church, so on. We took quite a long excursus to cover that material. So thank you for doing that with me and, and interacting in uh, discussions about that because it's kind of the topic I'm on right now. Now we're moving on to Paul's trip to Jerusalem that has a lot of drama because along the way he's being told that he is likely to be arrested or get in trouble when he gets there and it's going to lead to some bad things. And so there's this tension <coughs> that arises because of the warnings that come along and Paul's determination to go. So we're going to explore that. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather in your name. Thank you for your kindness and goodness. Pray for wisdom and understanding. Help us encourage one another as we look together into your word and seek to live lives that would be pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. There's another, uh, there's a sheet of verses that Christie's uh, distributed. There's, and uh, the reason for those, okay, just so you know where we're going, there is a parallel between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem to be rejected and Paul's journey to Jerusalem to be rejected. And I believe that it's Luke's intention that that's the case. And what we want to do is show that through parallels, not that there's a, it's identical because Jesus was going to die for sins, but Paul is going to walk in the steps of his Lord and go to Jerusalem. And there are some themes that we'll see in this parallel, parallel, and it should give us a really good appreciation for the narrative unity of Luke-Acts. And the more I've been studying this, which has been 15 or 20 years now in Luke-Acts, it's, it's unbelievable, the, the brilliance of Luke-Acts as Holy Spirit-inspired scripture and just the literary quality of it. So let's go now to verse, chapter 21, verse 1, as Paul is leaving from Miletus and heading toward the uh, beginning of his rest of his journey to Jerusalem. Acts 21.1, And when we had parted from them, that's the Ephesian elders, and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, from there to Patara. Notice that this is also one of the we passages and sections, and there's no reason to doubt that Luke was indeed a travel companion of Paul. And so Luke, Acts, and 1 Corinthians, for example, has a lot of shared terminology in the Greek, and I think that Paul and Luke were certainly close to one another. And we see that there. So I believe that we passages are where Luke is actually traveling with Paul. In this case, by ship. Yeah. Here we go. How come I have a delay here? Because I got a slow computer. Yeah, that's why. I, now here, now here's all, our lights are whacking this. Can you see that at all on your handout? Someone asked me what happened to the maps, and I said, well, because I didn't move anywhere for, we were in Miletus for a long time. So here we have Miletus, Patmos, Kos, Rhodes, Cyprus, Cyprus, I mean, to Tyre, and we'll be talking about these are real places, but one of the things that we want to uh, pay attention to 
is that the Bible is historically and geographically accurate. There's no reason to be doubting the Bible. And unlike many other religions, the pagan religions, or even ones in our day like Mormonism, their places have no actual existence. And so you have a mythology, and then you have cold, sober history. This is history. There's no reason to doubt it. <coughs> now, one of the things that we're going to emphasize is that this journey to Jerusalem has been important to Paul all the way along. It keeps coming up. And at, at one point, there was a discussion about the money that was being collected for the saints of Jerusalem. But it's interesting, as he gets closer, that doesn't come up. And when he gets there, it doesn't come up. It's mentioned a little bit later. Because what happens is the drama gets so intense. And not only as he gets to Jerusalem do you have a problem arise, because James will meet him there and say, we have 3,000 believers who are zealous for the law. So not only did the Jewish authorities, when he gets there, rise up against Paul, many Christians did. And the drama has to do with, has its roots all the way back in Luke, that Jerusalem is facing judgment. Luke Acts really emphasizes the judgment that comes on Jerusalem. Matthew has a little different emphasis. Matthew looks a lot all the way to the end, but this, what will happen in Jerusalem, is a focus of Luke. And so Jesus went to Jerusalem to be rejected. Paul goes to Jerusalem to be rejected. And I can see from what's said in the various other epistles that mention this, the collection for food, the Paul's desire to make sure there weren't two churches, a Jewish church with headquarters in Jerusalem and a Gentile church with headquarters somewhere else, but that there be one new man and that the church is not intended to have a world headquarters on the earth until the millennium. Are you with me on that one? There's no world headquarters. There was a, it was a very strong urge before the destruction of Jerusalem, which is not narrated in the New Testament, that Jerusalem would be the headquarters of the church. But it was not to be. And the reason there's no, excuse me, the reason there's no world headquarters is the intent of the church is that God would save people around the entire world without respect to their ethnicity, their geographical location, and so forth, and that that would not be restrained by ethnic or regional considerations, cultural considerations that would tend to exclude people from Messianic salvation. And as I've said before, coming to Christ is not dependent on geography. And this is very, very important. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But yet, anyone anywhere who comes to faith comes directly under the rule of Jesus Christ transferred from the kingdom of and domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And as I've said before, you could be in solitary confinement in some faraway, dark, horrible, wicked place. But if you knew the gospel or got the gospel or knew what it was, you come to Christ, Jesus Christ will save you right down there in that dark hole. And you'll be directly related to Jesus. It's the worst possible scenario, but it's not going to keep you from him. 
if you cry out to him. The headquarters are at the right hand of God on high. He says, Psalm, uh, Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2, and so on. And uh, that's very clear in the New Testament. However, throughout the entirety of church history, after the death of the apostles, massive, intensive desire to create a world headquarters. Constantine's, who was it, his wife or his mother-in-law? Who was related to Constantine that built the church buildings? I should know that. I do know that. Was it his mother? Yeah, that was his mother. Constantine's mother found holy sites several hundred years later and built church buildings on them. They're still there in Jerusalem. We'll build one here and we'll build one there, trying to create a headquarters. And Roman Catholicism wants the headquarters in Rome. Greek Orthodoxy wants the headquarters in what Constantinople, where's the headquarters? Greek Orthodoxy. Assemblies of God, headquarters in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, there's other denominations, headquarters in Illinois. Southern Baptist headquarters somewhere in the South. There's no headquarters. Get a clue. And there's no translocal authorities now that there's no apostles and prophets that are valid ones. The authority of scripture and the priesthood of every believer. So what we have is local churches under Christ who are part of the universal church connected to the same head as somebody anywhere in the world and the reality of that comes to the fore whenever we happen to meet someone who truly knows Christ wherever they may be. There's a connection between those who truly know Christ that was created by God that existed before we met them and will become clear when we do meet them. And the connections that are created by man are based on geography and uh, human relationships that were created by cultural similarities or whatever. But the true connection between believers is created by God. And one of the things that's true is a love for the truth. Yes. Oh, hold on. on. Uh, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Just to illustrate what you say, you know, when we go out and do street evangelism, there's a, an enormous difference. I, I can't tell you, I can't even, there aren't enough words to describe. When you run into somebody who's a fake Christian, oh, I'm, all, I'm, I'm good. You know, what are you guys doing out here? You know, I don't have time for this. You know, the, the, the ones that are not genuine believers, but, but there's a lot of them, and they go to these, a lot of churches, and they go to these churches, but contrast that. We, we have run into people who are genuine Christians, mm -hmm. and they are overjoyed. Wow, you guys, it's so great that you're out here. Thank God that there's people out here. You know, it's just, it's like a yeah. total discovery. We can spend a bunch of time, if we're not careful, just, you know, kind of praising God together and being so happy together. It's yes. just amazing. Thank you for that testimony. And that's true. And I've noticed that back when I used to travel, we went out once the group uh, within a great big, huge church had a small group of people hungry to learn the truth and invited uh, myself and another brother to go preach to them. And I was in California. We got out there Immediately, you're meeting new people who love the truth and wanted us in their home and wanted to pray together and stuff. And there's just masses that are just religious consumers. So why do you get so, what's, why do you make such a big deal about everything? Why are you so picky? Picky meaning you want the gospel rather than entertainment, religious entertainment. A process, I call it processing religious consumers. And you can predict what religious consumers will do. 
You can get marketing experts to create the product for religious consumers. You can get administrative experts to tell you the best way to process them and make them happy and to get them signed up to serve the organization. And you end up with a massive organization, but you have to look around to find a saint, no matter what they say externally. When it's real, it's real. Right, brother? That's right. And I've noticed that when I was out in Portland, Maine, I was in Barbados, and I'm not a big traveler, several different places in California, and I was in Southern Illinois with, a, well, that brother Gilly is a great preacher, so it's mostly saints there. You can fellowship with about anybody. See, if the word of God's purely taught, and the things of God are at the fore, you find out it's mostly saints. Not patting anybody on the back, it's just people are born again. One thing is true, they're born again by the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, who gives us a love for the truth, and gives us something in common we don't have with anybody else, even if they say they're Christian, but they don't know Christ. Do you see, that's the difference. And uh, so this is kind of what's going on here. Now, even those who know Christ can get caught into air. We know that. We're not naive. We're going to see that here at Jerusalem. And uh, that's part of the thing that's the duty of the elders is to correct that situation. We saw that in 2 Timothy 2. And some 1 Timothy to really patiently teach those who are in opposition looking for God to grant repentance. Because we don't have a love for the truth. We've already lost the battle. The other stuff will come around. Okay, so there's a thing going on in the background. Let me read it to you, Acts 20, 22. Now behold, bound by the Spirit, Paul said, Acts 20, 22. I'm, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Verse 24, Acts 20, 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So they were weeping and sad about that. And when they parted, it literally says in the Greek, they had to tear themselves away because they so dearly loved Paul. And it was so heartbreaking to hear what he said. But this isn't that different than what happened with Jesus. We're going to see this. Jesus was certainly uniquely the sinless son of God, fully human and fully man. So we have these, uh, this travel, and you maybe have Bible maps in the back of your Bible. So well, Schnabel has some stuff here. Talks about important commercial centers for trade, Rhodes was, in the Mediterranean. Rhodes, the ship anchored at night, continued to Patara, port city in western Lycia. Patara's harbor was used by the grain ships that sailed between Egypt and Italy from Alexandria, Alexandria to be able to get things to Rome, which enabled Paul and his associates to find a ship that would take them further east. So there's the route. And the deeper the water, the more unprotected the area was from the winds, the bigger the ship had to be, and the more treacherous the journey. So Paul was on a number of those. Here's one that I put in and <clears throat> I found in my logo software. This is a modern day picture of the harbor at Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are often mentioned together. And Sidon is north of Tyre a bit, but they're 
areas where the ships would come and bring cargo that was part of the trade that was going on in the Roman Empire. So it was very important. It had to do with food and other goods. People of civilization has been around a long time. It's not new that we have trade and ships in danger. Now we have people trying to bomb the ships that are bringing things from one area to another. They had things like that back then. They didn't have the explosives, but they had other ways of attacking one another. As far as Tyre and Sidon, they were traditional enemies of Israel. And Jesus mentioned that in uh, Luke, when he was rebuking some places he'd been, Luke 10, 13, and 14, what do you Chorazin? What do you Bethsaida? For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, your Sidon, in the, day, the judgment than you. This was a, a judgment and war oracle against these places uh, that Jesus did appear. And by doing the mighty deeds that he did, demonstrating who he is, those who angrily reject him are just heaping more guilt on themselves. That's why the war oracle here in Luke. Now in Acts 12, 20, it says this. <clears throat> now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. One accord they came to him, and having won over blasts of the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country is fed by the king's country. That was about Herod. So these are real places. The intrigue, the politics are real. It's gone on for centuries and centuries and yes, millennia. And we still have the same thing. Dear ones, human beings haven't changed. Evolution's a lie. They're still male and female, no matter what they tell you. <laughs> and there's always um, prejudices against different groups, one another. It's gone on as long, all the way back to Cain and Abel. There's always problems like this. It's the nature of human beings, fallen as we are. The one thing that God is doing to bring uh, something different is redeeming people out of the world, put, making them one in Christ, and filling our hearts with his love and his compassion, and God can, in that way, and does, bring unity, the unity of the faith. But even that is always under some sort of stress, if we're not careful. If we start thinking like the world, the unity of the faith will get stretched, stressed, I should say. We're going to see that in Jerusalem. It's amazing how deep these traditions and the inclinations based on traditions run. And so this whole blow up in Jerusalem has as much to do with Christians there than it did with the Jewish authorities. When I first saw that, it was shocking. You think the Christians have their act together. But they were causing a lot of the problem. There were still a lot of Christians zealous for the law who wanted Jerusalem to be the world headquarters of the church. That wasn't Jesus' idea. Uh, Christy made for you something that you can take home. So we'll talk about this again next week. I did this work Friday, I think I was working on this. I, have the, I gave you one in English. I have the Greek words here. But I have passages about Jesus' travel to Jerusalem in Luke. In, in Luke... From Luke 9.51, although I have verses before that, from Luke 9.51 all the way to the triumphal entry, there is a travel narrative that has a reverse parallel construction. The center of it's in Luke 13. So it goes this way, this way, this way, this way, Luke 13, and then in a reverse order it goes back to the end of it. It's amazing. I should, get, I should print that out too. 
Um, so what this is, is the fact that Jesus already on the Mount of Transfiguration was previewing his rejection. Now, if you look, you have that. Yeah, you have a sheet, don't you? Look at Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him. That's on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they were Moses and Elijah, who were, who appearing in glory, so they had glorious appearance, were speaking of his departure. See that word departure? The Greek word there is literally exodus. They were speaking of his exodus. This is unusual terminology, so don't, don't miss this. Speaking of his ex exodus, which he was about to accomplish. Now, this is a New American Standard, I believe. Accomplish is plerao. Plerao is a word for fulfill. So the exodus, which he will fulfill, is a departure that will go all the way to the right hand of God in heaven. So the travel narrative is from uh, the beginning on the way from Galilee, on the way all the way. It doesn't take that long to get to Jerusalem. This is all of Luke, basically. Luke 9.51 to the um, like Luke 19, going to be rejected. And on the way, parables, teachings, previews, teachings about the kingdom, the various things like the prodigal son, so on, the purposes of God. But this is not a tragic failure, although there's a tragic, there's pathos, but it's God's purpose that Jerusalem would fill up the sins of her ancestors because Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent. And as we get toward Jerusalem and the passion gets stronger, we have the Jesus lament. Now I'm going to ask us all to do something here. Read this material. I gave you the verses. You read If you want to read more of Luke, however much you can, we're going to have to do something in all these cases that most Christians don't want to do. Basically, you read the text, but that's another matter. We're going to accept what God says and not allow parochial theological considerations to so blind us that we won't accept what he says. Amen. All right, that's what happens. And there's a price to pay for reading and accepting what it says. You may lose your friends. Okay? What it says is that Jesus really lamented over Jerusalem. He really felt the passion and the love. How often I would have gathered you as a chick together the chicks under the chicken chicks under wings, but you would not have it. And then not one stone remained on another. But on the other hand, there's other cases where Jesus thanks God that he hid these things from the wise and prudent, but revealed them to babes. So one and the same time, there's the purpose of God, the passion of God, the desire to save, and the purpose of God that many will be hardened and judged. That coexists through the narrative. And what we're told by religious consumers is you got to choose one or the other. And I refuse to do that. I remember Dr. Versa put out, I, I put his little story in this article I'm trying to write. We're reading through Matthew. We're going to do something different. We're going to read Matthew. That's how we're going to study Matthew. We're going to read it. Oh, really? In seminary, read the Bible? So we're going through, and people would, you know, try to put connection. We'd learn what he was looking for. What's Matthew say? One time we got to a verse that said, I thank you, Father, you hid these things from the wise and prudent. Or 
that you've hidden these things. And the student put up his hand and said, Dr. Versaput, this can't be right. God doesn't hide anything from anybody. Dr. Versaput is like this. <laughs> Read it again. And he read it. Well, I don't get it. Well, then maybe we'll just keep reading and it'll make more sense to you. But see, what we want to do is retreat to somebody's preconceived ideas based on philosophy or religious tradition rather than read. Read the text. And do you think God isn't wiser than we are? And so once that sunk in for me, and it took a couple decades, it's liberating. I'm going to preach all the text and whatever, whatever version we're on at the moment is going to offend somebody. That's because we think we know better than God how he should run his universe. This tension is happening right here with Paul. And Luke wasn't worried about giving God bad publicity. Luke just told it. At one and the same time, people are telling Paul by the Spirit not to go. And Paul is compelled by God to go. How can that be? How can people speak by the Spirit and say not go? And Paul, motivated by the Spirit, says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm willing to go even to die. And the best, re I'll tell you ahead of time, I'll give you a hint. The best reading is to look back at Jesus as he is praying in Gethsemane, who is intent all the way from the mountain. Before that, there's previews, but at least from Transfiguration, we know what's going to happen, but it doesn't change the pathos. It's a Greek word that I think sometimes transliterated. It's both real. And we're expected to, to believe it for what it says. And what the popular church does is put it, something in some version that people can accept and just stick with that and ignore everything else. So um, and both the versions of that are really not the best that so we need to be able to accept. I want to be able to preach every verse I come to without feeling like I shouldn't preach this one. I don't want, I, I can't do that. And I feel less confused by doing it this way than I did when I felt like I had to ignore the ones I knew people didn't like. Let's go on, Acts 21, two through three. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Here's Luke with Paul. When we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. So that brings us to Tyre. Sidon is a little ways north of Tyre, but not a super long way. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. This is details that would be familiar to an eyewitness. Why not believe Luke was really who the Bible says he was? traveling companion to Paul, and I witnessed still many of these things, and the very person who wrote Luke Acts. So what he claims is what the Bible claims. It's more satisfying to believe that than to come up with some critical source theory, which I don't think adds much to anything. So this trip from Patara to Tyre was about 400 miles, and this was, Tyre was an ancient city and a major port for merchant traffic. So, so uh, Luke's details are true to life. Tyre and Sidon are linked together as ancient enemies of Israel. So let's go to verse 4. Acts 21, verse 4. And after looking up the disciples... We stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So I just set you up for this, all right? My little speech about this 
is getting us face to face with it. Here it is. It didn't make Luke blush to write this. So the obvious question is, how could the Spirit be bringing Paul to Jerusalem and telling, and through the disciples, telling him not to go there? I know some student would say, well, God can't do things like that, Dr. Verse, but read it again. didn't bother Luke and he didn't change things to make it seem more philosophically pleasing. He told us the whole thing. Uh, we got a, Greg has a, or Eric, I mean. Yeah, um, you know, we, we are kind of conditioned by Greek thinking, you know, the Greek rational type thing. Now, Hebraic thinking is that the scriptures are to be believed, period. The scriptures are, to, the Bible is to be believed. And so if we can't rationalize it, like what you're pointing out here, if we can't see that as both being true, that's not God's problem. <laughs> that's our problem. In other words, we're to believe this, and God reconciles everything just like the doctrine of election, all of the things. There's so many things. We have to realize that we submit to God's reason, not the other way around. That's true. I will say, however, that in the end, it's not irrational. Right. I agree Rational with categories are still valid, law of non-contradiction and so on. And what I noticed, though, when I really got just steeped in theology during the 1990s. I had most of 10 years to just study, 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 study. I, I would always want to see the answer that doesn't create an impossible contradiction. And I noticed that there are such answers. That God at one and the same time is a loving, compassionate God and is a God who chooses and does things how he sees fit. And that none of this needs to be seen as a totally irrational incapability. And part of that, the categories of common grace are important, I would say. The, you go to one extreme or, or the other. Some people say everything's based on free will. Free will, free will, free will. Well, there's not a single verse in the whole Bible where the word free, eleutheria, and either word for will, a bulamai or thelema, the two of them never appear together. The word free is never used to modify the word. I did a printout. Every form of it, all of the Greek, every time free is found anywhere, all of the places I did, I searched everything. I couldn't find it anywhere. And so I sent that to some people online who were anathematizing me and telling me I was a horrible Christian because I wasn't taking, teaching free will. And I said, okay, here it all is. Every time the word free is used, 100%, as an adverb, participle, a noun, an adjective, however you want it. Here's all the different usages. Not once does it modify will. And you're telling me that if I don't believe that, which doesn't even appear in the Bible, I'm a wicked Christian. I'm a follower of John Calvin, who's an evil man, who beheaded people, and so I should be damned or whatever. Anathematized. I have a different God. That's what, that's what they say. I said, well, you'd think if I'm going to get that kind of retribution, show me one verse with free will in it. And they send back a bunch of verses on human responsibility. And I said, well, where did, when did I ever say humans aren't responsible? I never said that. God doesn't say that. Every human's totally responsible. Well, that doesn't make sense. That's irrational. Okay. But 
I can't preach free will when I spent 50 years going verse by verse to the Bible and I still haven't got to the verse. Why don't you send me the verse and I'll preach it? Well, there, it isn't in the Bible. Well, then they say election is from John Calvin. If you teach election, you're an evil preacher. So then I found all the verses on election. I had pages of them. Well, here's all the verses on election. And some people that were more friendly and not so hostile, I said, listen, here's all the verses. Send it to them. Here's the Greek. Here's the English. Here it is, all of it. There are so many of these verses. One would think that at the very least, you could be kind and patient with somebody like me who believes them. Can't you show some charity to somebody who actually believes all these verses? Have you thought of that? And that usually silences them. I don't hear back. I said, well, at least give me the grace to believe all these verses. Does that make sense? Um, in the end, I felt after those 10 years of digging through everything that uh, Jonathan Edwards actually has the best answer if you need one. Edwards on the freedom of the will has the best answer. If you have to go to the philosophy, it's very dense reading. Edwards unbelievably brilliant. But his, his answers satisfied me. And he said the whole issue is the definition. The definition of free will, which he defined as the ability to do as one pleases. The ability to do however one pleases. If you're free to do whatever you please, that's the definition. So the sinner is pleased by sinning. They're allowed to do so because of God's patience, common grace, so be it. The saint who's heard the effectual call is now different, and it pleases the saint to serve God. So everyone's doing as they please. The rebuttal is, well, then God should just zap everybody, and then they'll all be Christians. And you might be surprised. I'm getting into this because it's going to come up anyhow. You might be surprised. Uh, Eric has pointed this out before, but you might be surprised that Paul directly addresses that. Did you know that? He directly addresses that objection. I believe that's in Romans 10. Is that right? Romans 9, is it? Yeah, Romans 9, excuse me. Because he gives his this statement and then he anticipates the objection. Then you will say, who resists his will? Is that the one? Do you want to find, Eric, the exact verse? And so there the word will is used. You will say that. And what's Paul's answer? No, you don't understand me. You know what his answer is? Who are you, O oh man, to reply to God? And that shall the potter make out of one lump of clay the vessel. That is not going to please people, but it's Paul's answer. And I feel very confident that sticking with something in Scripture is better than sticking with philosophy. But don't get me wrong. God still is loving and merciful and kind and patient and Jesus really did grieve over the death of those who die. Amen. It's all true. And we'll know more after the resurrection. Yes. Amen. Um, this is Romans 9, 19 through 20. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? By the way, the implied answer is no one can, ultimately. It's rhetorical, yeah. That's rhetorical. And then he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And the obvious answer is that's not appropriate. What's interesting then is Esau I loved, or I'm sorry, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. All the way through, he's chosen one and he's rejected the other. When you get to verse 22, this idea that he can make one for honor and one for dishonor is seen in verse 22 where he says, 
What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? The participle there prepared is katartismena, and it's either middle or passive. And so we have to wrestle. If it's middle, people are preparing themselves. If, in fact, mm-hmm. it's passive, it's a divine passive, God is the agent who's preparing them for destruction. Well, all the way through, God is the one who's doing this. So it really is a divine passive. The question is, how does he prepare them for destruction? Well, he lets them be who they are. As Bob said, in their bondage of the will, they always choose sin. That's the point. So all he has to do to harden the unregenerate is let them be who they are. But if he's going to take the unregenerate and make them one of his own, then he's hands-on. And he has to change us in the heart. Because we're already lost. We're already lost. Well, see, when I look back at it, at the point of my conversion, I thought I accepted Christ. Yeah. I found out later he accepted me. Yeah. But if I, looking back, let's just be honest about I was a hostile enemy. I was so angry about these Pentecostal fundamentalists who had gotten my girlfriend into their church. I was violently angry. I was just hostile, cursing and swearing and carrying on at work. I worked midnight shift. The next day I came back saved to work. So before I was, okay, I'm going to turn 21 in December. Party time is coming. Iowa was a 21 legal drinking age state. Uh, And uh, we were... That, my mind is, oh man, this is this is horrible. This is, nothing could be worse than your girlfriend becoming one of those people. I was so hostile to that. And if somebody took me as I was then and said, here's what will be true two weeks from now. You'll be over there in that little Pentecostal church and you'll be down in the basement of the church crying and praying to God and you'll be singing when the roll is called up yonder and you'll be with those old ladies over there, and you'll like it. Whoa, whoa. Would I say, okay, I choose that? No. Well, did Diane tell me things that would make it seem good? No, she was telling me that they had been at these meetings and they were telling how the when the future judgment comes, the rivers are going to turn to blood. Boy, that sounds attractive. But God smote me in the heart. Dear ones, God is the one who changes us. Furthermore, to have peace in your heart, let me help you if I can. It's God's mercy that we don't know who. It's God's mercy that we don't know who his elect are. And we don't know whose names are in the book. These things are unknown to us because we're better off not knowing them until God works and then becomes clear. That's his plan too. So go by what we do know, what's revealed. Trust him for the things that don't seem to make sense to us. And as we go forward in that mode, We'll end up like Paul and his friends and we'll be weeping over things that we think are certainly happening. Jesus wept. Jesus lamented. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem and he knew Jerusalem was going to be judged, but he still felt the passion and the compassion and the desire be fully human and fully God as he carried on to be rejected and to ascend to heaven. And he gives the material in Matthew about the future judgment that will come. And also in Luke. That's how we have to go. What we can learn from this is to, that Paul is portrayed by Luke as doing the right thing. The people telling him not to are moved. Can we reconcile them? Well, I read the best commentaries I have, and no one's quite sure how to reconcile it other than the analogy with Jesus himself. And if someone, maybe you have an insight. Uh, 
Let's look at this. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So there were believers in the area where they were at Tyre. The issue of the propriety of Paul's trip is debated in Acts, but not in Paul's mind. Agabus, the believers, his friends, don't go. We love you. We know what will happen. It's going to be horrible. Don't go. We care about you. And so one of, the, one of my commentators said, it's debated, but not in his mind. Similarity to Jesus. If you look at um, Luke 9.51, it's on the sheet I gave you. That's the beginning of the travel narrative. Now it happened that when the days were approaching for him to be taken up, notice the terminology, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, cross upon his face. In the prophets, what is it like when someone sets their face? Set your face like flint. I will not be deterred. I am focused. Set his face. He will go. He will be rejected. He will be taken up. And nothing will stop it. That's Jesus. Paul in Acts will go to Jerusalem. He talks about the collection he was taking, why he was going, and then it was going to lead all the way to Rome, where he'd be killed, probably. And he was determined to go. Jesus had passion about the bad situation, sweat drops of tears. He said, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine. Jesus, Paul has, have, has weeping with the brothers when they heard that he said they won't, he won't, they won't see his face again. They, they gather around, they cling to him, they cry. They bring their families down as he's going. They so love Paul, but they say, well, the will of the Lord be done. We'll get into more of that. The difference is, of course, Jesus is God the Son who died for sins and ascended to heaven. Paul is an apostle, a sinner saved by grace. But you see the similarity. I believe that the, if you read the thing here from, that I gave you from Luke, and then what we've seen here from Acts, and I'll bring some more of that, that this is intended by Luke. This analogy is intended by Luke. What do we learn from it for us? Sometimes what we must do in God's providence, where we must be, what we must deal with, what must go on because of the nature of providence. Now, we don't have an infallible prophet telling us these things. It creates the same passion, pathos, tension, brokenhearted sorrow, because we, too, see things that break our hearts. And we must cleave to the Lord. We must remain faithful to the gospel. And, and many, many times throughout the history of Christianity, people that truly know the Lord and must, must cleave to him and stay firm in the gospel have family members associates, friends who hate them and reject them. Harrison preach on that. He's covering that verse. And that should tell us something, but it seems not to. It seems not to. The sorrow of having family members not serving God has broken a lot of Christian hearts, but it's inevitable. It must be that offenses come, but woe to him by whom it comes. And the danger, and this is more than danger, this is happening. It's happening in Christendom. The danger is that we change the definition of the church so that we don't get rejected anymore. We change the definition of being a Christian so that our children become Christians. We change the rules. We change what it looks like. We change it, change it, change it. Eventually, everybody's still one big happy group and there's no more conflict. But that means we ignore what Jesus said in Matthew. 
don't believe that I came to bring peace, but division. Paul going to Jerusalem is going to bring a lot of division. And it's part of the process whereby eventually Jerusalem comes under judgment and not one stone remains on top of another. But why go through all that pain and passion? Well, this is revealed because it's God's intention that the gospel would go to the whole world and not have a world headquarters. There will be a world headquarters during the millennium. Thank you, Eric, for fighting that battle on the internet. A lot of people say the church replaces Israel, God's done with Israel. It's not true. But during the church age, there's no world headquarters because God doesn't want people excluded because of national pride and prejudices and stuff like that. It's for anyone, regardless of where they came from. So I have Acts 20, 22. Let me read a couple of these. We have a couple of minutes. Acts 20, 22. <clears throat> Let me read that. And now, behold, notice Paul says, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, so this isn't unique, seeing that bonds and afflictions await me. That he knew. He was going to be, he knew it. He's going to be rejected. Acts 21, 11, which is a preview we'll get to. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, this is Agabus, I believe, bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles, which happened. They're begging him not to go. He, he said, why are you breaking my heart? He's gone. People told Jesus, I'll be it far from you. The Son of Man must suffer many things and die. No, no. God's ways aren't our ways. And I'm urging us, all of us, accept what the Bible says and be patient. I'm not saying the Bible teaches contradictions. Because contradictions are meaningless, like a square circle. I'm saying we don't understand the whole counsel of God. Some things aren't revealed. And what's not revealed is, has a purpose, too. It's for our good. If we knew what we wanted to know, we couldn't handle it. We couldn't function, because we're human beings. We're not omniscient. So what we don't know helps us be compassionate and gospel people because we don't know who's going to get saved and when. So um, I have to give credit to where credit's due. Tannenhill, Robert Tannenhill, in the 90s, I got his two-volume work, Narrative Unity, Luke Acts. It's been life-changing for me. And uh, This is, I have a separate printout of that. Let me see what we got left here. There's, there we go. Another prayer for, another farewell. They loved Paul. They came out with their children. They prayed, they cried. And away he went, off to be rejected. And so, I, uh, yeah, I've been searching for ways since at least the late 80s to explain these things in a way that's not going to cause angst and disgust amongst Christians. It's very hard to. The assumption that we have to choose one group or another group from church history, no. I will not choose a group from church history and join. We are not giving up. We believe we can actually read the Bible and know it. The church is defined by the Bible, not by church history. So I could care less about either Calvin or the Pope or, I mean, yeah, I do care because there's a lot of error. 
on all different sides of things, and we learn from church history, but we don't have to join somebody's group. We're lazy. Obviously, they join this, they figured it all out. Nobody's ever figured it out, but this group has something, I'll just do what they say. Turn the brain off, go to church. Let the Pope decide. Don't do that. <laughs> Read the text. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. And give us wisdom, patience, love, compassion, that we may be more like you. And may we learn from what has said here and go forward trusting and believing you and sharing the gospel. And we do pray for the suffering, that you bring healing, for the loss, that you bring salvation. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.